electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. 800% mentions of inflation are up 800% on earnings calls this quarter. No wonder Janet Yellen mentioned the potential for higher rates. What does her about face mean for the markets, and will investors buy it? We'll ask. Plus, Jamie Dimon wants to come back to the office. The Zoom CEO is tired of Zoom calls. We'll talk about the future of work, employee shortages, rising costs, and the future of gig work with the CEO of Job Marketplace, Upwork. And jump in, the water's fine. Hayward shares soaring as the surge in demand for pools continues. But we're going to talk to the CEO about those chlorine shortages that are hitting this summer and what to do about it. We start with the markets, though. Dom Chu here at those numbers. Those market waters are a little bit warm as well right now. Maybe not as hot as a jacuzzi, but still tepidly warm, you can say, trying to resurrect itself after that tech-based sell-off that we saw in yesterday's trading. This time, just yesterday, we were talking about some more red markets here. Take a look, though, at the Dow Industrials. Now up about 100 points. It's up about one-third of 1%. It's not crazy high, but still, it's constructive. The S&P 500, 41.78, the last trade there, up about one-third of 1% as well, and a quarter percent gains for the Nasdaq, 13,661, the last trade there. One key focus for many investors in this kind of inflationary environment that talk of inflation has been energy. We know that oil prices have rebounded sharply over the course of the last year or so. Look at the energy stocks, though. Typically, more lever to oil prices up about 41 percent. Best performing sector in many cases on certain sectors in time. Now, the S&P oil and gas exploration production side of things up 64 percent. But look at the commodity itself up about 168 percent. Remember, negative prices weren't that long ago, about a year ago, in fact. Just take a look at those now. Crude oil price is certainly a huge one to watch. And we're going to stick with the commodity theme. Normally, I would highlight a big stock of the day. But in this case, we're going to show lumber. Now, this is the May contract. It's not as heavily traded. It will expire next week, but it's just a hair below 1,600. That's a record high for this particular contract. It's also up about 360-some percent in the last year. I would point this out, Kelly. The July contract, which is the most active one right now, also hit a record. It's around $1,500, though per uh, board foot, a thousand board feet. That particular move there shows an interesting dynamic. It shows that demand for lumber and lumber prices now and very close to now, much higher in the future, those prices start to drop. So an interesting dynamic. They call it backwardation. backwardation. That's right. Yeah. But I had to explain it because the bosses will get very mad at me if I say backwardation and don't explain what it means. But it means not- that right now, those prices are a lot higher because of demand. They're not as high in the months in the future. And this is key, Dom, because it's not just lumber. It's a lot of commodities, and it means investors don't think the prices are going to stay this high. And if you're the Fed, that's a big deal, right? And it's also interesting from a trading dynamic because there's a carry aspect. If you are playing the futures and you're going to roll into the next month's futures, you're rolling at a cheaper price. So there is actually a bit of profit to be made 
whenever there's a role for futures. Something to keep in mind. And that's what you're doing over at your desk there. Uh, all those <laughs> yes. hours. Dom thanks our Dom it. Chu. Uh, today's market reversal mirrors that of Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's yesterday. She had some explaining to do after her comments suggesting interest rates might need to rise to prevent the over- economy from overheating. She later clarified at the Wall Street Journal CEO Summit, saying, quote, I don't think there's going to be an inflationary problem, but if there is, the Fed can be counted on to address it. And Chicago Fed uh, President Charles Evans took that a step further in his speech today, saying the Fed may have a hard time even reaching its 2 percent inflation goal, adding, quote, Fed policy is likely to be on hold for some time. Let's talk more about this now. Joining me are Jill Carey Hall. She's senior U.S. equity strategist for B of A Securities. And Bob Michael is head of global fixed income strategy for J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Welcome to you both. Bob, I haven't seen you in quite some time since the summer of zero rates, uh, shall we call it, (laughs) during the pandemic. So are you still... I mean, in, in Treasury parlance, we'd call it bullish. In other words, um, do you think that rates are going to fall from here, rise from here? And, and it, what do you make of all this Fed speak the last day or so? Um, hi, Kelly. You know what? Uh, Janet Yellen, God, I love her. She said exactly what we're all thinking, that given the current and expected rate of economic growth and inflation, the current level of yields is just plain dumb. And the reason they're there is because that's where the Fed wants them, at least for now. And sure, afterward, she was reminded that she's a Fed alum. She has to toe the line. Evans came out and reminded everyone they still haven't yet reached their inflation target. They still haven't recovered all the jobs lost. Loss, but I look at it like you're standing on the train tracks and there's a freight train coming at you. Hmm. Are you really going to play chicken with it or are you going to jump off the tracks? So we're at 1.6 percent, let's call it, on the 10-year. The way you're talking, it sounds like we should be over three. Um, look, a good starting point should be at least 2 percent. Zero real yield on, on the Fed's inflation target of 2 percent. Until they start raising rates, it's going to be difficult to get too far away from 2% because you're tethered to 0% in cash. But yeah, they should start the normalization process with tapering, talk at the Jackson Hole, um, August meetings, Hmm. and they should start raising rates, I think, by next year. That's a good point about Jackson Hole. Um, But still, this is way ahead of the time frame. And it's confusing because Yellen herself and and Powell would seem to be so focused on this goal of making sure they don't choke things off too quickly. And yet here we go. It sort of seems all over again. But let me put that to the side for one moment, come over to Jill, because Jill, are you expecting sustained inflation when you look through the equity side of things? You know, not just, okay, we have some price pressures this year, but what do you see as we start to look 12 and 18 months out? Right. So we're not we're not expecting a, a surge in inflation, but certainly you are seeing a, a big pickup in inflationary mentions right now. Um, you know, the, the stat you mentioned earlier, what we were seeing on earnings calls is inflationary mentions overall are up 800 percent year over year. And even, you know, the average company is seeing is mentioning inflation much more so than than a year ago and, and relative to history. So a lot of these are on the, the cost side, you know, transport, import, input costs, uh, where we haven't seen inflation mentions pick up as much yet is on the, the labor cost side. Um, so that, you know, if we do see higher minimum wages overall, the, the wage backdrop going up, that could be the next headwind for, for companies in sectors like consumer discretionary, which is, you know, one of the most labor and 
intensive sectors. Sure. Um, and that's one that we recently uh, lowered within our equity strategy view uh, to, to take a less positive view on, on that I, sector in part if, if we just pick up the other. Yeah, no, and that's a great point. I know that you guys also, you're looking at small caps over large caps and some different ways to kind of play this trend. But so... It, it sounds to me like what you're saying is we're not yet seeing conditions where prices are going to keep rising. We all know we're in a pinch right now. Um, but maybe with wages keep rising, are we there? Or, or do you think it just takes some time? I'm just curious, as you try to value equities, what assumptions you're making and whether they're at odds with what we're hearing from the Fed right now. Right. I mean, I think, you know, when from an economic perspective, we're still looking for, for core inflation to be in that 2%-ish range on average this year. And when you look at, you know, CPI or other measures in, in the next few quarters, certainly we're going to be above that. But for from a company perspective, for equities, you know, when we look at net margins this earnings season, companies are actually so far been able to, to handle these costs and, and price through. We're, we're seeing margins actually continue, uh, rising. Uh, so this is something that we're, you know, companies that have pricing power, we think are, are better positioned in this backdrop. Companies that are much more labor intensive, if we do start to see wages rise or worse positions. And then, you know, I think a lot of, uh, you know, smaller companies, while they can be more labor intensive, this could finally be a backdrop that if we're shifting from, you know, large companies taking share, low growth, low wages, to you know, a backdrop where um, there's a focus of the administration on small businesses and, mm-hmm. and these companies could be well-positioned. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So, Bob, let's sort of put a point in it. What is your advice to investors here? You know, what should people do if they if they believe what you're saying, that Janet Yellen is just saying the obvious? Well, I, I think you're supposed to hide in the front end of the yield curve. So short in duration, you're supposed to like credit because credit spreads can still come in, particularly in the high yield space. Yeah, we'd like to all buy at a higher yield, but we can't. There's a recovery that's accelerating, and that's good for credit spreads. And the emerging markets should eventually draft off of the recovery in the developed market. So there's some good value there in emerging market debt and currencies. Interesting. Uh, even with all the, you know, if rates are going up, still some ways to, to invest around it. Okay, we'll leave it there. Bob Michael, Jill Carey Hall, thank you both. We appreciate it. Let's turn to shares of Upwork, which are down today, despite reporting better than expected earnings and stronger guidance after the bell yesterday. Remember, they connect freelancers to companies with job openings. And thanks to the pandemic, freelance work has expanded dramatically, with more than 50 million people freelancing in the U.S. The question is, as the economy reopens, will freelancing be here to stay or do people revert to those regular corporate office jobs? Joining me now to discuss is Upwork CEO Hayden Brown. And Hayden, it's great to have you. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Kelly. So I'm trying to think of how, what, what would I predict? I, I guess I predict this whole YOLO economy is here to stay, this idea that people are going to kind of be piecing together work themselves, that that's here for good. Um, but, but maybe I'm wrong. I mean, tell me what trends you're already seeing as things gently start to reopen. Certainly, we've seen that people want more autonomy around when, where, and how they work. And that trend started well before the current pandemic with people shifting into the freelance economy. And that accelerated dramatically over the last year as more and more workers really got comfortable working from home and found that freedom worked for them. And actually, as more companies realized that they could tap into talent all over the globe to solve critical work that they really needed to get done and really to close the skills gap and the talent needs that they had, again, pre-pandemic. And now as the world opened up for them and they could use their remote work skills to tap into talent everywhere in the world, 
this is something that they want to do even after their offices reopen. They really want to tap into these workers who are everywhere in the world. And, and you guys are one of the best stock performers last year. I mean, obviously, people saw this as, to some extent, a pandemic play. Um, what do you say to investors who go, you know what? Love the story, but I think there's going to be a reset. I think people are going to, you know, go away from freelancing, at least temporarily, as corporate jobs really have to kind of pay up and offer these benefits to lure them back. And they might think, hey, this is more tantalizing now. Hey, I, I can actually do more jobs from different places than was ever av- available to me before. Yeah, it's a common misconception. But in reality, the war for talent is not going away. And when we talk to CEOs and executives out there, they're really looking for new solutions to this age-old problem. And that's where Upwork comes into play. I mean, we have always served companies that were working from offices, but we're eager to access talent all over the world. And even as companies go back to work in offices, they're going to take with them their remote work skills. And the fact that they realize the benefits of tapping into this global talent pool, what we're hearing from them, even as they reopen offices is, hey, we still wanna access this great talent. We still want the benefits of not just the talent, but also the flexibility to scale up and down our operations using this amazing workforce and have the agility, the cost effectiveness and all the other benefits that come with that. So we are incredibly confident that even as the world continues to reopen, people still need the benefits of this workforce and it works great for businesses. It also works great for talent. So it's truly a win-win. Yeah, it seems like it's becoming more mainstream. Um, You guys announced a new industry category today, the work marketplace, enabling freelancing to reach its full potential by giving freelancers and companies multiple ways to upwork. So obviously we continue to watch all of this. But my last question to you is, what can you tell us about what's going on with wages? Are they going up? I've heard a couple of conflicting narratives. On the one hand, anecdotally, you hear stories about there being a lot of shortages, a lot of wage hikes, retention bonuses, that kind of thing, a lot of churn, a lot of turnover. On the other hand, people say, you know what, that's happening in pockets of the economy, but still not overall. I wonder if you can kind of point to which direction might be the case. Kelly, what we see on our platform is, you know, these are high wage earners. These are highly skilled freelancers with skills like web mobile software development, UX, UI design, writing and translation skills. So these folks are earning a lot already and wages are increasing as the competition for their skills continues to be quite fierce. So we're very optimistic that, again, by opening up this marketplace and the competition for these workers continues to be more and more heated, these folks are in a great position to um, earn more and more and really set the terms of their engagement as they always do as basically business owners and entrepreneurs um, on our platform. So it's a really great day, I think, for workers who are able to really define the conditions for themselves around exactly how they want to work, who they want to work, where they want to live to do these highly skilled jobs. Yeah. Uh, Hayden, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Aiden Brown is the president and CEO of Upwork. And coming up, how big is too big? A new study shows Biden's spending plans would cost far more than currently projected. We have the numbers and whether they add up to a positive economic impact that the White House is hoping to achieve. Plus, the solar stock slide. Some of the biggest players are down double digits just the past month. We're going to look at what's behind the losses and what's next for the sector. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. 
specialised across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. The White House has touted its spending packages as a once-in-a-generation investment that will boost productivity and GDP for the long run. But a new independent forecast shows that the cost could outweigh the benefits. Elon Moy is here to break down the latest numbers. Hey, Elon. Hi, Kelly. Well, a nonpartisan analysis of President Biden's American Families Plan finds that instead of boosting growth, it would actually drag down GDP because of the size of the national debt. The Penn Wharton budget model estimates that the human capital investments in universal preschool, free community college and national paid leave program, those tally up to $2.5 trillion, about $700 billion more than the White House expects. Meanwhile, the tax hikes, like raising the top rate to 39.6% and treating capital gains as ordinary income, that only brings in $1.3 trillion, also less than White House estimates. Now, higher costs, less revenue, mean more debt and less growth. Penn Wharton projects the family's plan would reduce GDP by 0.3% from the baseline in 2031 and nearly 0.4% 30 years from now. Now, the model does find that average hourly wages would increase thanks to improved productivity, but those gains would not be big enough to offset the drag from the debt. Now, the White House is pushing back against these numbers this afternoon. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said they strongly disagree and pointed instead to an analysis by Moody's earlier this week that had a much rosier economic outcome. So, Kelly, the tipping point here appears to be what the final cost of the president's plan will be and how much deficit spending that Congress is actually willing to swallow. Back but over Penn to Wharton generally is a pretty trusted source. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's run by someone who I believe worked for one of the Bush administrations. It's a nonpartisan outlet and um, is relatively and reliably seen as an accurate forecaster. Of course, these numbers are going to be all over the place, though, um, as we get more details of what these spending plans actually look like. And of course, once we see what Congress has to say as well. And we're going to pick it up right there. Elon, thank you. Elon Moy in Washington. Biden's big spending plans include these big tax hikes, um, even to get to that gap that she was just describing. But the tax hikes themselves aren't sitting well in some parts of the heartland. Wisconsin is seeing a rebirth in manufacturing and jobs, for instance, but higher taxes threaten to derail that growth, especially if the stepped-up basis is eliminated. Joining me now for more is Republican Representative Brian Stile of Wisconsin. Congressman, thanks for joining me. Welcome. Kelly, thanks for having me on. So the, the thing I want to make clear is that the, the issue you're hearing from constituents is not about stock market holdings per se. It's that these are businesses mm-hmm. that threaten to have to change considerably, be sold, run into major tax bills and so forth if uh, the president's spending plans pass. There's a real disconnect between the Biden administration and Nancy Pelosi's plans for the United States, the reality on the ground. I visited a manufacturing facility here in Franklin, Wisconsin. Uh, that had a line that wasn't operating because they weren't able to find workers. Uh, We have a business uh, in Walworth County that's now closing on Wednesdays because they can't find staff to help run the restaurant. And what we see is the Biden administration and Pelosi looking to raise taxes, the step up, uh, the 1031 like kind exchange. I call it a land transfer tax. It's going to hit family farms. Any farmer who wants to sell 100 acres, 5,000 acres, cross that $500,000 threshold, is going to be hit with this land transfer tax. It's going to have a real impact 
to families and businesses and farms right here in the state of Wisconsin. You're a Republican. The president's a Democrat. But where do you think your colleagues are on this issue? Do you think they're facing bipartisan pushback on some of these proposals? I think people are only starting to fully appreciate the impact that the taxes are going to have on families and workers across the United States. It sounds good to say one is only going to tax the rich. But the reality is, when you look at the $6 trillion in new government spending that the Biden administration has put forward, it's very clear that, that those taxes are going to have a very serious impact, not only on the high earners, but really on everyday workers here across the state of Wisconsin and across our country. That's the concern is the negative impact it's going to have on getting workers back to work across our country. I wonder if you think the spending proposals themselves, though, are attractive enough to voters that they might say, you know what, we want what he is proposing and we don't want to pay for it with taxes. Maybe we're just not going to worry how we pay for it. I think voters are smarter than that. I think voters are going to know that the ultimate result of this is going to be higher taxes. It's going to be higher taxes on the one percent today, but ultimately it's going to come all the way down the list and affect all families uh, here in southeast Wisconsin or across the country. I think the voters are smarter than what the Democrats in Washington, D.C. right now think they are. Or maybe they just have different preferences uh, that don't quite align with uh, these, this agenda just yet. Um, but in any case, Congressman, thanks for joining us and explaining a little bit about what's going on on the ground. Uh, we really appreciate it today. Thanks for having me on. Congressman Brian Stile joining us from Wisconsin. Coming up, a tale of two stay-at-home stocks. The first sharply lower after product recalls. The name and details ahead. The second soaring on earnings. Pool equipment maker Hayward Holdings up 24% right now. But could a chlorine shortage drain momentum going forward? The CEO joins us live ahead. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get a quick check on markets right now. The Dow's just off its session high of 160 points, although with the lows, we are down 93. So we're back up to 129 point gain, a third of a tenth of a percent. But look what's happening with the Nasdaq. Even though it's rebounding today, it's still underperforming. It's up only about a tenth of one percent. In terms of the movers this hour, Peloton, what a story this one is, on pace for its worst day since November after recalling those treadmills. Remember, uh, there were fatalities with children. Shares are down nearly 30 percent since the company initially pushed back on the CPSC's uh, recall request two and a half weeks ago. Some catch up today. It's down 13 and a half percent. Under Armour, though, is up nearly 10 percent and trading at its highest level in more than a year after several upgrades from Wall Street after its earnings beat. 8% gain for UAA. And the ARK Innovation ETF is trying to avoid its seventh straight day of losses. That would be the longest streak since 2018. It's down 9% this year, putting it in the bottom percentile in its Morningstar category, down a third of a percent again. And be sure to catch ARK Invest founder and CEO Kathy Wood Friday on a Closing Bell exclusive interview. Let's get over to Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Kelly. Here is your CNBC News update at this hour. Your Governor Andrew Cuomo says that Broadway theater tickets will go on sale tomorrow for performances starting in mid-September. 
The major group representing theater sales says that ticket sales will resume this month with specific reopening plans expected in the coming weeks. The firing of the Atlanta police officer charged with the murder of Rayshard Brooks has been reversed. Garrett Rolfe was fired a day after he fatally shot Brooks in the parking lot of a fast food restaurant. Rolfe appealed his firing and a city board agreed, saying that he was not given due process. And the U.S. birth rate has fallen to its lowest level in more than a century. Last year, the rate fell 4 percent. That's the biggest decline in nearly five decades. The cost of raising a child is becoming a key consideration. You can see what's being done to address those concerns tonight on the news with Shepard Smith. Kelly, it's a reversal of what people were actually expecting. Well, here's a hopeful one. Pregnancy tests, uh, they're, they're up, Rahel, 13% year on oh, year. So maybe we're going to go from bust to boom. That's an interesting factoid just pulled out there, Kelly. I happened to, to write know. my newsletter on this very topic today. Fascinating. I'll have to read it. Uh, Rahel, we'll see you shortly. Thank you, Rahel Solomon. We have another Facebook flashpoint working out to a public debut and Circle K subscription on tap. It's all coming up in rapid fire just after this break. But first, it's time for some show and tell. We show the chart and tell the story. Today's chart, GM, up nearly 4% on earnings. And despite the chip shortage, CEO Mary Barra addressing that issue earlier on CNBC. We're going to make up as much as we can. I I can't say that we'll make all of it up. I mean, especially when you look at how uh, strong demand is right now, especially in the United States. uh, uh, You know, that's a a huge opportunity. So we're going to build every vehicle we can. Uh, Whether whether we can make up every single vehicle uh, will will depend on, on, you know, the whole chip supply. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on several stories that should be on your radar right now. It is time for Rapid Fire. And here to break down today's headlines are Julia Borston, Mike Santoli, and Ina Freed, the chief technology correspondent for Axios. Ina, welcome. Let's get right into it with Facebook's Independent Oversight Board. Again, what a story this whole thing has been today. Their Independent Oversight Board is upholding the company's suspension of former President Donald Trump's Facebook and Instagram accounts. This after finding he did violate their rules in the wake of the January 6th Capitol Hill riot. The board also finding fault with Facebook, saying the company broke its own rules by imposing an indefinite suspension and ordering the company to review it in six months. Meanwhile, Trump is blasting Facebook, Twitter and Google, saying they must pay a political price, Julia, for everything that's happening. The weird, weird thing to me about the story is that this is a Facebook-appointed board in the first place, and they're acting all, oh, you need to do this and you need to do that. I mean, they don't have any actual independence, right? Well, it, it is an independent board. So Facebook gave this money to create this board, but the board operates fully independently. And I actually think the fact that they decided what they did and they threw a lot of the decision back to Facebook shows just how independent they really are. They're saying, Facebook, your job is to make the rules, make the rules consistently, make them clear. And our job as the independent oversight board is to make sure that you are enforcing the rules. So the oversight board did have a couple of key things here that I think are worth noting, saying they think that safety and security should be the, of the utmost importance, saying that if there is some question of whether or not to leave something up, 
if there's any risk that it's going to incite violence, it should be pulled down. And they said that's more important than whether there's a public interest in someone saying something because they're a public figure. Right. They also said they didn't think politicians should be treated differently, Kelly, just because they're politicians. Mm-hmm. They said they think it should be based on how many followers people have, you know, how widespread their reach is rather than the fact that they're a politician. Right. In other words, a Kardashian or somebody with just as many followers would have the same standard applied as a, as a politician. Ina, what's your take on all of this? Well, I do think it's noteworthy that they threw some of this back to Facebook and say, look, it's your job to have the right policies in place. I think that's important. I think ultimately the responsibility is with Facebook. You know, I I think the thing about followers versus uh, elected officials is kind of curious because I don't really think as influential as she is that Kim Kardashian has the ability to take over the government with a Facebook post, whereas Donald Trump, you know, many would say tried. So I do think there's a different standard for world leaders. And I think that where a lot of the criticism outside of the partisan criticism will come is that notion that, um, you know, we have to have some standard for political leaders so that they are able to voice their stuff. And we need a line of where they're interfering with democracy. And it's not just the U.S. You know, everyone's focused on the U.S. and the right and the left. But this is a policy that's also going to apply to leaders around the world. Mm. And Facebook has had a lot more issues in Myanmar and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. So, Mike, let's bring it back to the shares, which are up 16 percent this year. Uh, Does this put the issue behind it, so to speak, or does it kind of leave it out there uh, as something that's hanging over the stock? I, I would say to the degree it has hung over the stock, it probably uh, remains, maybe it's a bit diminished. I think that, you know, I'd love to differ with the kind of financial consensus on this company and, and say that there's going to be some kind of inflection point in terms of business model, in terms of regulatory risk. Uh, it really has not been the case. Uh, the pie is so big, it's growing so fast. Facebook is so dominant within it uh, that, in fact, Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg has begged for clear parameters. Tell us what the regulations are. We will follow them. When a company has dominant market share, the regulations tend to work in their favor because it preserves right. some kind of status quo. Although still, Julia, it, they can do whatever they want. They're a private company. I mean, Twitter, which banned Trump indefinitely, doesn't have any kind of review process like this underway, right? Well, Twitter does have its own system um, that they're working on right now. But Twitter did make the decision definitively to ban Trump permanently from the platform. So they are creating a sort of a a self-policing mechanism of users weighing in on on whether tweets should be left up or not. But I think in establishing this oversight board, yes, Facebook can do whatever they want, but they committed to following the recommendations of the board. Yeah, it's just weird. We're going to create a board with our, you know, then we're going to listen to what, but it's, you know, you have to imagine a future they might disagree at some point. I don't know. The whole thing feels like theater, but uh, there we are with a pretty severe, as you, as you correctly said, uh, judgment on, on how the company handled this. Let's move along, talk about some Netflix, which is going to release its upcoming zombie movie, Army of the Dead, in theaters a week before it debuts on the platform. Army of the Dead will be showing at more than 200 Cinemark theaters starting May 14th. According to Variety, though, it's not going to play at AMC or Regal. Netflix just took a hit on subscriber growth in the first quarter. The shares are down 9% in three months. Ina, does this strategy make sense to you to kind of use the theater as a way to drive, I suppose, engagement with the film? I think it serves two purposes. I think, you know, they want to be seen as a filmmaker, and we still judge films pandemic aside, as did they go to the theaters? I think what we're going to see in the next couple of years is a complete hybrid model for movie distribution. We're already seeing it. You know, the films have come straight to uh, VOD because of the pandemic. Now we're seeing a VOD company, Netflix, go into theaters. And I think we really are 
going to see a hybrid future. I think the most important thing going forward is you have to make the business model work. Films are expensive to make. And somehow out of that combination of subscribers and theater goers, you have to be able to pay for that expensive movie. Mike, what's your financial take on this as Netflix is up now against the likes of Disney and Peacock and so many others with so many different strategies for how they release content. Well, everybody's converging. Netflix already is a huge studio, perhaps the most prolific. And so I would sort of defer to Netflix's judgment that if some of their releases seem like they could earn revenue and get more attention and kind of solidify Netflix's place as a creator uh, of, you know, proprietary content, it makes a lot of sense. Also, I think we probably would overplay the idea that there's cannibalization. You know, a 200 million box, box office movie is seen by 20 million people. You know, there's still the majority of people on Netflix would not have seen it. There's mm -hmm. 80 million domestic subs. So it seems like it all could work together. Julia, what, why do we think that it's going to Cinemark, not to the other theaters? What do you read into that? Well, look, I think that Netflix is taking advantage of a moment right now. There just aren't as many films in theaters right now. And the, the theaters have traditionally set lots of rules about how long a film has to be in theaters before it's available for streaming. And I think this is an experiment. It's probably an experiment for both Cinemark and for Netflix. Yeah. And uh, I'll be curious if we just see more and more of this, and maybe that's exactly what the cinema industry needs uh, is a little bit of innovation. All right, next, our sources sources tell our David Faber that Equinox, the luxury gym, is in talks to go public through a SPAC headed by social capital's Chamath Palihapitiya. They're seeking a valuation north of $7 billion. But is this a smart move right now? Amid a broader SPAC slowdown, companies that Palihapitiya has taken public, including Virgin Galactic, Clover Health, and Open Door, are all down double digits this year. So, Mike, are they... Getting in while the getting's still good, or is that door starting to close already? I think the, the valuation is probably going to be what the valuation is. In other words, whether the stock, whether the SPAC performs poorly thereafter is maybe a little bit less uh, of an issue. And by the way, this floated out there. Uh, it gives a little bit of a test as to how the market might receive it. It doesn't seem to necessarily love it when it comes to this particular SPAC, but really it's not uh, a rebellion. Equinox has kind of threatened or promised some other way of, of going public. I mean, it's been rumored over the years. It's very much, though, a, a New York play, uh, very much a, a kind of back-to-the-gym uh, type play. It's a statusy brand. It's not like Planet Fitness, but it would have a similar valuation based on cash flow uh, to Planet Fitness. So it's an interesting asset, uh, but, you know, I'm not sure that a SPAC is necessarily the right or wrong reason, uh, wrong way to do it in this case. Apparently, it's been shopped around. Right, exactly. I love how that's kind of like the, the almost the insult. <laughs> uh, but, Julia, we wouldn't have expected this conversation just a few months ago to be talking about a gym, mostly New York City-based, you know, re getting ready to go public. I think I just saw they're about to put Broadway tickets on sale starting tomorrow, so it is a sign maybe of things getting back to normal. Yeah, I think there's so many questions about the future of these assets. Remember, Equinox also owns SoulCycle, which, of course, is competing with people's Pelotons at home. So I think there are so many outstanding questions about how consumers are going to behave in the post-pandemic world. Yes, some diehard Equinox fans are going to be very eager to get back in the gym. But I wonder if people who used to go to SoulCycle now may be invested in a Peloton over the course of the pandemic. Maybe they will be more wary of getting back out there and paying for those classes. I, maybe. And, or maybe they'll be sick of the bike and they'll be ready to, you know, <laughs> to, to get back into it. That's why I'm very curious to see. Uh, finally, as if we needed another subscription, speaking of Peloton, uh, Circle K is launching its own beverage subscription program, joining the likes of Burger King and Panera. Starting today, customers can pay $5.99 a month to have one tea, coffee, or Froster slushy or Polar Pop fountain drink every day. And this isn't Circle K's first loyalty program. They also do a car wash subscription. And, Ina, I know you're a big fan, right? 
Yeah, I'm a huge Diet Coke addict. So if there were a Circle K near me, I'd be out of bi- they'd be out of business. I did. 7-Eleven has something similar. This is a gamer cup they sell in very limited quantities uh, each year for like 149 bucks, and you get a soda every day. They're not making any money on me on that. I I go in every day uh, for a giant fountain soda, as Kara Swisher can tell you. Um, but you know, I think it makes sense. I mean, many people will go in and buy something more expensive or buy something else rather than just get the soda. So you're basically, you're getting some money up front for bringing the customer into the store every day. I think that's what they're betting on. Julia, this is what we were just talking about with iRobot. You know, they need to do a Roomba subscription. Yeah, look, I think this is really smart to build new customer habits. Everyone's customer habits changed during the pandemic. And I think this is all about establishing that that routine of going and buying, getting your your free drink because you paid for the subscription already and then stopping and buying a breakfast as well. And if they can get people regularly into the stores, I'm sure it'll be worth losing all that money on Diet Coke uh, for Ina. (laughs) Mike, would you ever be a coffee subscription kind of guy? I theoretically could be, although I think to me, I would turn around the economics of it and say this shows you just how profitable fountain soda is for these companies that they're still making money on Ina probably (laughs) with the six bucks a week. (laughs) Isn't it true that like restaurants, all of their margin is on Coke and and soft drinks? I mean, yeah, if they can take it down to this and they're still profitable, we're all chumps. Even Ina, even Ina, maybe you're not getting the best out of it. (laughs) They're still making money on you. All right, we'll leave it there, everybody. Thank you, Julia Borston, Mike Santoli, and Ina Freed for Rapid Fire today. Still ahead, shares of Hayward Holdings, one of the largest pool equipment makers, is soaring today after reporting better than expected numbers in its first release since going public. But a chlorine shortage could put a damper on summer fun. We're going to talk to the CEO about that and other supply issues next. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. Check out shares of Hayward Holdings. It's one of the largest pool equipment makers in the country, and they are up more than 20 percent today after the company reported its first quarterly results since going public in March. Diana Olick is here with the details and a very special guest. Diana? Yeah, Kelly, a huge first quarter for Hayward. It beat on revenue coming in at $334 million versus estimates of $259 million. Sales up 96% year over year. Its 80 cent loss per share was significantly smaller than the loss a year ago. Full year guidance showing net sales growth of 40 to 45%. So let's talk pools. Joining me is the company's CEO, Kevin Holleran. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. I want to get right to it. Uh, in the earnings release, you said we experienced tremendous demand for our pool equipment as investment in the outdoor living space remained a focal point for consumers. We're all getting back out in the world now. Many of us vaccinated. That may mean getting back to public pools. Is that going to cut into your business at all? Cut in? No, no. That's actually part of our business. Uh, we welcome uh, those public uh, pools, those municipality pools coming back, back open and letting a broader population enjoy the great outdoors and healthy, uh, healthy lifestyles. So we, we supply the commercial market and we're full line and uh, uh, we welcome uh, those pools opening back up again here in 2021. Because as you say, 75% of your revenue is from equipment and technology needed to maintain and upgrade pools. But we're seeing shortages, chlorine, pool liners, rising costs for cement and other materials. How's that going to hit your bottom line going forward? Yeah, we've, um, um, it's there. You know, where uh, demand is causing some inflationary pressures. Um, we have, uh, we've actually been able to pass through 
uh, some pricing increases. But you know, even but before that, we actually take on uh, mitigation plans our, ourselves, so we don't uh, necessarily pass all of that along. Pool equipment is still very, very affordable in the grand scheme of things. You can build a pool, you know, entry level, maybe you know, thirty thousand dollars for an in ground, and the equipment itself is really only high single digit maybe 10% of that total investment cost. So uh, it's still a very uh, uh, affordable endeavor. And, uh, you know, from a chlorine side, you mentioned, um, we have some nice alternatives based upon some some shortages that exist with chlorine tablets. We make salt chlorine generators. We also have UV and ozone products, which actually help to reduce the amount of chlorine needed to properly treat uh, the pool. So we've got some nice options uh, for the pool owners and the consumers out there. Kevin, you just answered my question. It's Kelly here. And I was going to say this is all the talk in town, people trying to figure out whether to do a salt conversion or the UV option, some of the other things you mentioned. So will your company benefit even if people convert their pools to be saltwater pools or look for other ways of trying to keep them clean? Yeah, we absolutely will. So um, just touching there, uh, the UV and the ozone can be paired with any kind of chlorination system. And when paired with whether it's a tablet, whether it's liquid, whether it's a salt pool, that'll reduce the need for, for chlorine up to 50%. On top of that, we actually make, make salt chlorine generators, which is an alternative way uh, to tablets. So it's a more natural way, less harsh chemicals uh, in, the, in the environment. So we think it's a preferred way. It's a better Swimming experience, frankly, salt water, I think, has some advantages from a skin, from a hair. Uh, um, it's a more enjoyable uh, experience. So we have some good options uh, to satisfy uh, the shortage that exists in the marketplace. So, Kevin, we talk a ton about how much home prices are soaring out of control right now. When people buy a home that doesn't have a pool, sometimes they think, OK, we'll get the home, we'll put in the pool. But those higher prices might leave them with less money to spend later. Are you concerned about any of that? I'm really not. You know, there's there's, you know, frequently people are rolling, you know, equity from the prior home uh, into the new home. So, you know, uh, um, equity values, uh, the market's doing fine. So I think people are feeling better about their nest egg right now. So we've seen broad secular trends, whether it's the boomers as they retire, making these in investments in the backyard, whether it's the millennials who really show an appreciation for that extension of their home life into the backyard. Uh, we're very, very confident that even with uh, rising uh, home prices, that this investment in the, in the outdoor living space with of course pools being the centerpiece of that in investment is gonna stay very, very strong into the, into the future. We talked a little bit about shortages, but what about supply chain issues? We're seeing that with every product out there. Are you seeing those ease up now more as more people get vaccinated or getting back to work in the supply chain? No, no. I, I mean, we, we still feel some shortages. I think that our supply chain and our operations team done a fabulous job actually exhibiting our agile manufacturing, our, our lean manufacturing environment. We work lockstep with our supply partners out there. There are some shortages that we work through, but I think in general, really what the Q1 results were that you mentioned at the front end of this is really uh, the result of our ability to ramp production and to start satisfying this, uh, this demand in our order file right now. So when we talk about new technology going forward, you talked about the ozone, people don't really understand all the different things that go into pools. Are you investigating any types of new technology when it comes to what we're going to see in our backyards. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really something that distinguishes Hayward in, in the industry. I mean, we are we have a very, very environmentally sustainable 
a, a bend to our uh, um, design efforts. You know, so whether it's energy efficiency, whether it's reducing the reliance on, on chemicals or water conservation, those are really the driving forces behind our design efforts. But on top of that, I think something that, that really distinguishes us is our omni-control. It's that smart control that the homeowner has to really control all the functions uh, on their pool pad to really make that more a part, you know, demystify that, that the process, if you will, be able to work the light shows, change the water temperature, schedule chlorination. Uh, that's really something that I think we're distinguishing ourselves with to really make that whole backyard easier to operate and uh, 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 encourage folks to, to upgrade products and be, be able to take more control uh, of those water features and for the, uh, and for the backyard pool. Really interesting stuff. Kevin Halloran, CEO of Hayward, thank you so much for joining us. Kelly, back to you. Yeah, one of the biggest bull markets ever for the pool business. Diana, thank you. Coming up, solar stocks are mixed today after sinking yesterday. With companies warning of supply chain bottlenecks and part shortages, will the sun keep setting on solar? That's next. Back, the Invesco solar ETF is around the flat line today, down about another 1%. But that's adding to its losses because it's down more than 13% in the past week. And it's coming off its third straight month of losses as solar stocks get scorched. CNBC.com reporter Pippa Stevens is here with more. Pippa, what's going on here? Because this was a play a lot of people thought would do well under the Biden administration. Yeah, Kelly, well, this recent leg lower comes amid first quarter earnings results. And unsurprisingly, we're hearing from companies that issues impacting the broader market are also hitting the solar industry. That's, of course, the chip shortage, as well as the rising cost of raw materials, just creating supply chain headaches for the solar ecosystem broadly. Semis are a key component for battery storage, as well as solar inverters. On a company-specific level, we heard from Enphase Energy last week. They said that supply just cannot keep pace with demand, and they expect this to play out in second quarter shipment volumes. And their management actually sees these supply constraints continuing until the end of of the year. Uh, then this week, Solar Edge said that they've actually stockpiled parts in anticipation of this growing shortage. Uh, but shares fell 16% yesterday after the company said that freight costs have risen by more than 100% over the last few months, and that's expected to weigh on margins going forward. So this weakness hitting the sector broadly with names like Sunrun and Sonova also falling, Kelly. So, you know, in some ways, these are these are high quality problems to have, right? People want your product. You just can't make enough of it. Costs are up. That's hitting your profit margins. I mean, what do the bulls say about getting through this period and maybe being able to build a case for owning some of these names over the kind of medium to longer term? That's certainly right. And we're coming off of a record 2020. So, of course, a lot of people had expected a pullback here. Investors who are bullish say, look, there's still a huge growth potential ahead. Solar installations hit a record high in 2020, but only about 3% of that market is still penetrated across the U.S. So a lot of opportunity. Companies are focusing on cutting some of the soft costs like customer acquisition. I spoke to the new CEO of SunPower this morning who said they're trying to make it as easy to buy a solar system as it is to buy a book on Amazon. On. So companies focusing on efficiencies going forward. Are those all your art books, Pippa? <laughs> I can't tell you that. That's private. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite the collection. Pippa, it's great to see you. Pippa Stevens, CNBC.com. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, 
same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.